You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Good job, Chris. Thank you. I'm figuring this technology thing out. What a week. You had a podium in a U.S. National Series, and you figured out how to connect your headphones to your computer. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, I think Bracken was right about having to leave the meeting, but I do have to say that once I did leave, the um, whatever squad cast this thing is gave me the option to rate my experience, and it honestly hadn't been good up till that point. So I'm not sure if you get that feedback or if Squadcast does, but there was a um, – I got you here as a one-star given to – the overall experience of getting onto this thing. So sorry if that affects your Yelp reviews. We have a few one and two stars on iTunes. Really? <laughs> uh, we might we might add you onto the list of potential people it could have been. How could you, like, it makes no sense. People, people these days. <laughs> we, we said, I understand three. Three out of five is six out of 10, which is a 60%. That's a D minus. Yeah, sure. but it's like... It's, a, it's like, do they think they're being helpful? But but 20%. I mean... Tw- simply putting out the audio in in the correct language is worth 20% correct. At least, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would say just putting your name on the top of the paper is worth 20%, but based on the names in the yeah. sort of chat thing here, you, neither of you got that right either. So... <laughs> it's It's close. Where are you? Uh, where are you coming to us from right now, Chris? I don't know where you live currently. Missoula, Montana. That was a that was a more recent move, right? Yeah, I actually uh, I just the reason I'm late today is because I was at the DMV getting my plates and license. Um, so I'm official. It's also the reason why I have this particular mustache right now is because I was going to the DMV to get a new license. And I figure if you're in Montana. You should have a Montana photo on your on your driver's license. So here we are. I'll shave later. Typically, I would just scoff at the guest and say that's the least imaginative <laughs> excuse ever. Oh, I got stuck at the DMV right after the dog yeah. ate my homework. But this is legit. Yeah, sure is. So I, you know, a lot of thought put into this. Thought I had the time, didn't, and I apologize. But you know, that said. Uh, <laughs> wasn't it you guys who canceled on me the first time that doesn't sound right oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah so he, let's, let's go let's go way back to the origins of this podcast i think you guys were just getting started uh bracken and i had just met in tahoe i thought he was a nice nice enough guy we're both wearing robes conversations flowing pretty easily and uh you know sure enough a couple weeks later he says hey i'm i'm starting a podcast want to have you on as one of the first few guests I think I was mm-hmm. maybe supposed to be guest number two or something. And then and then uh, I think you guys got a little too much traction early on, got some bigger, more more impressive guests. And I just I got bumped. At least that was my impression of what happened. You saw right through <laughs> us, huh? You, I, oh, yeah, I got bumped for sure. <laughs> that was Bracken's way of getting back at you after you waxed him in the ultra. He wanted to set you up and then disappoint you. That's what it was. I think I think that's fair. I think, you know, I understand that motive. I don't necessarily agree with it, but. I said, Kirk, I met this, I met this prick out in Tahoe. <laughs> I've got this, I got this long con. I want to play on him. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, <laughs> here we are. Here we are. indeed. <laughs> Tit for tat. And here we go. 
why did you make the move out of curiosity? Because you were, weren't you like a West Coaster or something? You owned a, you owned a restaurant and all that. Yeah, yeah. I so I was in Santa Barbara for several years, um, uh, and owned a restaurant. Um, actually, I, I finally don't own the restaurant as of like a week ago. Um, hmm. Congratulations! Thank you. Oh, it's the best. It's definitely the best. Not owning a restaurant anymore. Um, the restaurant's fine. I'm just out. Uh, so yeah, I moved there to, to help some buddies open their own. The, well, I moved there to help some buddies open a restaurant that was in 2014. Um, and then, you know, worked kind of slave labor for them. I was on owner's salary, which is like $220 a week working hundred hour weeks. Um, so the, the idea was, you know, sacrifice myself for the dream of my friends. Um, and as compensation, they offered me the opportunity to be an owner on the second restaurant, um, which I, I thought was a good offer at the time. Uh, and so I, I got in on restaurant number two, and it was a nightmare. I mean, I love it. I love that. And I, I speak very ill of it because it's it's kind of like how you can talk shit about your best friends. Um, I'm a restaurant lifer, and uh, owning a restaurant's really hard, and I'm, I'm willing to talk shit about it. But I'm happy I did it. It was really tough. And then um, after about a year... Uh, started talking about getting out and then finally pulled it off um, some delays because of the pandemic and not wanting to have my friends buy me out when they're, they don't have any income. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I found myself without any attachment to the place anymore. And my fiance also is mobile. She's a massage therapist um, and has restaurant skills. So she can move anywhere, just take her a while to set up. So we just kind of sat down and looked at the map and with no, with no responsibilities anywhere, we got to choose anywhere. Um, so yeah, we just kind of picked between our favorite mountain towns and here we are in Missoula. Most people scatter to Colorado. They, they want to get to Boulder. They want to get to Golden, Durango. It's trendy. Mustaches like yours play really well there. Why'd you choose Missoula? Well, there's no ironic mustaches here. They're all real deal mustaches. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think you might be slightly outdated in your description of the sort of, I don't know, tech diaspora at this point. Um, I think at this point, people are heading away from, you're, I think Durango's probably still on, but like Boulder, I think people are fleeing Boulder. Um, people are moving away from the Bay Area. Uh I, we're getting, um, there's definitely some resentment towards people who are coming in from out of state here. Um, Mm -hmm. it's part of, it's part of what makes it great here is the pride in the place, but there's also this kind of downside that they're not terribly kind to outsiders, not so much in like a one, one one-on-one, um, we've never had a bad experience with an individual, but people talk openly about being upset, uh, that people from California specifically are moving here. Um, so I've got all these like all these things that I say, like the fact that I'm from Seattle originally. Um, and then, you know, if I want to get a little more snarky, I can bring up the fact that people are moving out of California because everyone moved there over the past, I don't know, century to begin with and drove up all the prices there. I don't know. There's a lot of there's a, it, it's not a strong argument to say fuck Californians for moving to our state. Uh, so there's plenty of ways to poke holes in that. But um, anyway, we're just trying to be respectful and um, not not kind of show off the fact that we're coming in from a place that a lot of people here resent. That's a 
It's a weird spot to be in. It's a weird spot to be in. But again, it's like, we're here for the right reasons. You know, it like, we love the culture here. We love the people here. We love the mountains here. It's like, those are the people you want to move somewhere, right? The people who genuinely appreciate it and want to be a part of what's already going on. So, uh, you know, we're just trying to be good new residents. Hmm. Do you, is there like a big, um, endurance running community in Missoula? Is that a thing or not? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the way that I've heard the narrative, um, is that it used to be a big triathlon town. And then I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, it kind of switched over to being a running town. Um, what I love about it, it's a, it's a really kind of undercover um, running town. Like there's, I'm getting my ass kicked by the guys who live here, but there's kind of two waves really. It's like there's, I, and I, I'm, you know, so new here that I'm going to butcher this and someone who's been here forever is going to um, be upset with my misrepresentation of the culture here, but like. They're not listening. Nope. yeah I, <laughs> yeah um so there's this like first of all there's seth swanson and mike foot right those are two of the biggest names in the history of ultra running they live here they're both really hard to get a hold of they're both you know super nice guys from what i hear i know footy a little bit i don't know seth yet but they both kind of do their own thing um but they're legends they're some of the best that have ever done it um and then there's this younger crew um guys like Adam Peterman, who just won speed goat, who's, um, potentially unbeatable on 50 K and under hard technical mountain courses. Uh, there's Jeff McGavro, who's another silent killer. Who's been on the podium at run rabbit run. Um, and then there's even guys who like, don't quite have the results, but are just as good. Um, but there's just no showing off here. It's like, people don't run status races, people just go out and do hard training and local races and I try to run with them. And it's like, Jesus Christ, dude, it's, this is a different scene from Santa Barbara. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, that there's just, there's at once a ton of quality and also no ego. It's just such a cool scene to be a part of. Those small mountain towns that are real prideful in terms of like, we have pedigree here, but we don't like run for Nike. They always remind yeah. me of, of Africa. Where there's oh, like yeah? 15 guys from any village who don't race, but all run like 13, 20 whenever they jump and stuff because they just train with everyone and they don't care about results. But they just, everyone knows like we've got some monsters in our backyard. If they just showed up to races and they'd be good as anyone. And that's cool that Missoula's got that. Totally. It's like, it's, it's like chefs who don't want Michelin stars. Right. <laughs> Is that too inside baseball? It's our first restaurant <laughs> analogy on this, on this show. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's tight here. Come by. Come hang. We'll go. We'll go run up some mountains. What are you at uh, altitude wise? Low. Guess. Well, I already blew it, but I would guess five. Thirty two. Thirty two. Wow. Yeah. So you can live low, train high. Annoying elevation. Thirty two is enough that when you first get here, you feel it a little bit, but you think it's your fault. It's yeah. like there is an altitude conversion. It's like a second for a mile. It's nothing, but you feel it a little bit, especially when you go up to one of the hills and go up to like 5,000 feet. You're like, I'm not at altitude. Why do I feel bad? But there's just a little hint of it. You can't quite do speed work and you can't quite adapt to a real <laughs> yeah. mountain. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of shitty in between. But uh, nice. no, I, I mean, you don't, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you can run fast here. It's not too high. Are you uh are you working full time with Spartan or are you doing something else now that you're in in Missoula? 
Yeah, I'm working full time with Spartan. I, I do a little bit of coaching, not that many athletes. Um, but yeah, I do some coaching and then I work for Spartan. So I direct a bunch of the trail races. Um, so I fly around, mark and course, you know, say and go, um, and then handing out medals. Uh, so I'll do that, you know, several times a year. And then I, I do some of the back end. You gave a nice speech, by the way, before the 50K. You gave a nice little speech there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been working on it. I, you, there's usually more jokes in there. Where, where were you? I was already back home just licking my wounds, Chris. Like uh, a good boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I do some I do some of the back end stuff, too, like inventory management and like shipping the crate all over the place and um, just some of the stuff you got to do on a computer. So that adds up to a full time job flying around and then doing some of the logistics. But yeah, full time Spartan. It's pretty awesome. It's nice to be out of the restaurant industry. There's just like when you're in the restaurant industry, everything that comes up is urgent. It's whenever you get a phone call or uh, just anything that gets added to your plate has to be solved immediately. And so I get emails uh, now that I have a sort of remote office job. I get emails and I'm just like panicking about getting back to the person within two minutes, which I think makes me look pretty good because I've just got a level of urgency that comes from uh, a situation in which literal fires are burning. So uh, you, you don't know by now that it's like a six month policy on emails from Spartan. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to like not adapt and just always be ahead of the game if I can. What's that? uh, How far did your, did you own or rent when you're in the Bay area? Uh, well, I, Santa Barbara, but I was renting. Definitely. Oh, you, yeah, you weren't Bay Area. I was a long time ago, but yeah, I've, I've never, yeah, I've never, never. Uh, this this is the first time I've bought a house is here. So yeah, always been okay. renting. Yeah. I was I was I was curious if uh if your money goes a bit farther in Missoula for housing than Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's one of those things that it's it's uh climbing rapidly, and everyone's pretty upset about it. Um, but you can also see the writing on the wall that it's only going to get worse. And so even though it's way more expensive than it was a couple years ago, uh, it's, that's certainly no reason not to jump in because it's not, it's not like it's going to level off. It's just going to keep getting more ridiculous. <laughs> so housing, man, it's a weird world. Where are you at Bracken? Where am I? I'm in Milwaukee, yeah. Wisconsin. There you go. Cool. Guess my elevation. Oh man, I've been there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a cute little town though. If we round way way up, we you hit, hit a to ten. Okay. No, I'm, I I think I'm at six hundred. Yeah, that'll do. Makes that work on point though. Bunch of northern boys here: Minnesota, Wisconsin, Montana. My God. Look at us, the heart blood of America. Oh. Yeah, dude. Be out there growing wheat or something. <laughs> Chris, I, uh, we, we want to get your backstory and all that, but I want to ask you just a couple questions because you're coming off like a big race weekend, and then we'll dive into that later in depth. But uh, first of all, I have two major questions for you. One, wh- why did you ever dabble in OCR to start with? Because I don't understand. You're kind of going against the grain for your crew, right? Not many people in the ultra trail running world, I feel like, really make a serious plug once in a while at it. 
And then two, I just want to know how you're feeling after your race. Um, so I think it, uh, okay. So the, the kind of origin story is me and my, all my cross country teammates in college back in 2010, maybe 2009 hopped in a Spartan, one of the earliest ones down in Malibu. I was there, Chris, and I really? didn't know this until this year. Wait, it's, did you see me in the results? You were wearing a, I saw you at the race. You, I, oh, there was a picture that Jack Bauer sent to me. He said, you were here, right? And you were wearing that like wrestling singlet or. No, no, no. That's Sacramento. That's two years later, Sacramento. So. Oh, so this was even earlier. Never mind. Carry on. Yeah. A couple years earlier than that. So I did this one in Malibu as a sprint. Um, I won it. Uh, there wasn't anyone really competitive in it, but, um, you went, went back then, at least you won, if you won the race, you got entry into the next level. So I won a sprint. So I won entry into a super. I did one of those. It was up in Canada. It's not the same format, but I won that and then one entry into the beast. But kind of like when I was doing that one with my teammates, I just noticed that I, I did way better than guys who were equal runners to me. And it's because most of the guys who can run as fast as I can also cannot do a pull-up. So the fact that I can do a pull-up introduces kind of this potential for being a hybrid athlete. Um, and I think about this sometimes, like, I, you know, I ran Western States a few times and I'm thinking like, all right, can anyone who beat me at Western States beat me in an obstacle course race? And the answer is definitely not. Um, Jim mm-hmm. Walmsley, are you kidding? <laughs> he wouldn't, there's not a chance. So I'd pay to see him carry a bucket though. I really would. Yeah, exactly. So good money. Um, that was kind of the, the deal as I started doing them just for fun. Cause they're, you know, cool. Um, and I really like the experience of it. It's just like redlining when you're doing obstacle course racing is such a more intense full body crippling fatigue than running even is. Uh, so yeah, I just kind of, I did it a few times just dabbling and then just kind of noticed that, um, people who, and, and you know, not to toot my horn as a runner because I've, I come from NCAA level, right? Like I look up to Olympians and I know that I'm nothing as a runner, relatively speaking, but people who are as good as I am at running don't have upper body strength as a general rule. And I have a little bit of it. So that, that, you know, it was kind of always an interesting proposition to me because of that. Bracken, are you, is Chris, is Chris earlier than you? Would Chris be more of an OG of the sport than Bracken Cracker? I think, I think technically, yeah. I ran my first race in 2010. Yeah. Look so, at that. Yeah, I, mine was either 2009 or 2010. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, and then and then the Sacramento race, um, I ran against Hobie and uh, Hunter, and apparently you. Um, and uh, you know, at this point, I was like, man, I did a really. <laughs> I wonder if anyone could dig this up. I did a really embarrassing post race interview there, where I was basically just clowning on the whole sport. Um, mm-hmm. because I watched, I it. was, you did. Yeah. Cause I was standing there. Oh, so you remember <laughs> this? Either I watched it or they showed it to me right after. Like, what do you think of this guy? And I was like, that's, I mean, that's everything he's, that's wrong with running right there. We're, yeah, he's we're, an asshole. we're not you inclusive. Know, <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, like the idea I was thinking was like, all right, here's the sport full of CrossFit douchebags who think they're, mm-hmm. you know, like the world's best athletes and they set up the sport to kind of serve their own needs. And then fair to some extent, 
Sure, but you know, it, they, there was a loophole there, which is you could bring in like a, a runner who can, like a skinny, scrawny dude who can beat them at their own game. So I was like, this is so silly that these people are so self indulgent and big macho men, and then you know, and then these scrawny dudes can come in and clean up. I thought that was funny, and I thought that the sport took itself too seriously. So I did this interview where I was just like talking shit the whole time about how how goofy it was. And um, how did you, you know, finish was, that race? I was second behind Hobie and ahead of Hunter. Wow. And that's why you don't, that's why you didn't know Bracken was there because he was behind you the whole time. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we were wait. we were, it, it was the three of us all day. So I, I didn't, I, it was, yeah, I don't know. Kirk, I think I told you about this race. I was talking yeah. to someone about it last week where um, I had, I got injured at the world championships that year and to finish out the point series, I went and I hobbled the rest of the races. Oh, wow. All right. Already starting with the excuses. No, I would have lost either way. I I was coming out of, I was what, a year out of being an 800 meter runner. I couldn't run much past an hour anyways. Didn't matter. But you could see for days on this course. And I just watched these three people running the whole race. You know, it was Hunter, who I'd never seen before, who's this hulking wild person who had no running form. And this guy in a wrestling singlet who looked like he could turn his legs over. But because I assumed he was a wrestler, I was like, how do these people not know they shouldn't be running with Hobie? And they just kept like hanging on and re-raising and hanging on and re-raising. And I just watched this play out thinking, I'm so bad. We have a wrestler and a CrossFitter just smashing me. And then what, nine, 10 years later, I find out it's Chris Brown. So to clarify, it was a sprinter's singlet from the, like the eighties back when they used to wear the full, it was like from okay. the, the, it was like the basement of the gym at my college. It was, so it's, this is like a full, it was, what was it like maroon or purple or something? Yeah, it was maroon. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a sprinter's singlet, not a wrestling singlet. Was that your subtle way to sort of like make fun of the sport? As Absolutely. You're doing it? Exactly. Okay. That was the whole point. It was a costume contest to me. The whole thing was just a show and I was there to undercut the whole thing by doing really well while not taking it seriously, which is like, I have a monkey wrench tattoo on my arm. All right. This is my, <laughs> this is totally consistent with my personality. The irony of your, you as a person is just oozing now that you, your texts come from Spartan. It is so wonderfully satisfying for me. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I mean, it was, it was clearly tongue like this interview again. I'm like not totally proud of it because I was joking around uh, and no one was laughing. So it just came across as really, uh, rude, I think. But it, I mean, it was obviously tongue in cheek because of the fact that like, I'm there racing, man. I got entry into this thing. This is my third race. Like, it's not like I think this thing is such a joke that I don't want to be part of it. I was obviously there because I wanted to be. I drove two hours to get there. Right. So I don't know that that's, that's kind of the, the entrance story there. But, but regarding, uh, Hunter at that same race, like the same thing that you were noticing there, Bracken, is I was running along with Hunter or Hobie, and I knew who Hobie was at that point. So when I saw him there, I was like, okay, well, this guy can run. Uh, you know, he'll probably drop me at some point, but maybe not. Who knows? And then I was running along with Hunter, and I was like, okay, well, this guy's gone in one mile tops, and he mm-hmm. just kept staying there. And I do this same thing now to a lot of the guys I'm racing, like Aaron Newell, especially, but. Uh, Joshua Reed, I did this too. And, uh, I don't remember who else, but just like just calling them fat during the race 
is just it's kind of one of the things that I like to do. So I just I just kept turning to Hunter and be like, "Man, you you move pretty good for a big guy. Like, what do you weigh, pal?" He's like, "Yeah, dude, I teach spin classes. I'm pretty. I got a pretty big engine." So, you know, I was just yeah. clowning the whole time. It was it's not my proudest moment, but uh, yeah. Anyway, Hunter was super super impressive. Although in hindsight, it was the right guy to say it to because he won't get offended. He'll just. Yeah, I guess Go so. Right back I, and... I didn't know him at all. I, I have met him a couple times and barely know the guy, but it, it makes sense. It was a very depressing day for me personally, Chris. Well, I'm glad you can now uh, sort of retroactively with your knowledge of the three guys who beat you, like re- yeah. kind of reestablish where what your performance meant on that day. We had this this website, this Facebook group called the Spartan 300 back in the day. Okay. And it was the top 300 allegedly ranked people in the world or in a private group set up by Joe DeSena or Mike Morris uh-huh. or whoever. And so everyone talked about who's coming in the next race. And so you always knew who was going to be there. And you knew if someone new came in, they were going to get smashed in their first race because they go out hard and then they do something upper body and they crack or they yeah. hit technical terrain and just walk off course. So I knew coming in that it was Hobie and then it was me and then there was no one else. And so it'll be out like, yeah, I can just coast through. I'll let Hobie go and I'll coast. I'll get a 13 mile run in and nice. have a meathead and a wrestler dropping you <laughs> right from the start. It was a terribly destructive day for me mentally. So I appreciate that initial Chris Brown experience. And I got the full experience. I feel I got a whooping. I got a show. And then I got an insult at the finish line. Like that was the full Chris Brown experience. <laughs> well, feel free to submit your invoices for the therapy that you've gone to since then. And I'll see if I can run them up the chain. Um, but uh, no, I, I remember distinctly talking shit about Hobie because he had just made public comments about wanting to break the two hour marathon, which I, you know, as a religious right. runner took offense to, cause that's, I mean, that is offensive <laughs> to propose yeah. that. But yeah, I, you know, so that was kind of the attitude I had coming in. It's initially, we had the worst possible entry into the world of running as our sport. We had a, a, a sport founder who wanted to glorify the Spartan. He named it Spartan, which was just mm-hmm. a really bad publicity move for running community because it was like the douchiest name you could come up with. And But it was great as a company. And then we had people in it who were enigmas and oddballs and people like Hobie who would audaciously claim I'm going to break two hours in marathon. If someone would just like give me 50 or hundred thousand dollars, I would do it. And like, it was just all in all. And we had a bunch of CrossFit roided out bros who would come on the start line, flex, sprint out and then fall apart. Like it was just the worst yeah. entry to be trying, trying to be taken seriously by the runners. It was terrible. So visualize, if you will, you're staring at your computer screen there's Nike, maybe it's two years ago. There's Nike branding everywhere. There's a couple Teslas and a follow cam. And there's just a big pack. Matt Centrowitz is there. Uh, a bunch of Nike professionals are there. They're forming a V. They're all wearing super shoes. And tucked right into the middle of that pack, attempting to break the two-hour marathon, is Hobie Call. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine that. That's a good one. <laughs> If it was him instead of Elliot Kipchoge, it would have been. It would have had he been running it though. We would have set up a point-to-point downhill marathon. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, but he also would have had a weight vest on. Not on race day. Not on race. Do you ever day, hear his yeah. full plan of how to do it? I did, but refresh me because I could use the 
you know, entertainment. Well, his goal was to run 440 pace in uh, for one mile with 40 pounds on his back, and he did it. Okay. And then oh, he was going right. to extend that to 5K pace with 30 pounds on, then half marathon with 20, and then run the marathon with no weight on, and and then he was going to break it. That was that was the plan. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting strategy, and it. You know, you put numbers in sequence and it sounds like a plan, but it's like going saying like, well, today I'm going to run a five minute mile and tomorrow I'm going to run a 450 mile and the next day I'm going to run a 440 mile and all I have to do is do that and then I'm going to run a two minute mile. If only linear progression applied correctly (laughs) to running, our lives would be really easy as coaches. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep running faster and then you'll break the world record. You know, I worked in a, in a, with a coaching business initially with some, uh, tech people. And one of them, um, fancied himself, a a guru and he believed that linear progression was applicable to running. And that was going to be our, our company's MO. Huh. We were going to apply linear progression to distance running and take over the world. And that was the beginning of our end. I mean, not, not to mention, you know, how biomechanically, erroneous that is just like i mean wind resistance doesn't work that way so there's like one simple way to prove that it doesn't work as linear progression or temperature yeah i mean it's just you're yeah it's glad you didn't go down that road so anyways hobie hobie was onto something and maybe hawk will hawk will pull it off yeah well hobie's a very nice guy and i regret somewhat making fun of him but you know i only have i only have one problem with hobie right now and that is that he's letting his roommate benny gifford go out and take nude photos by the river and that's not acceptable hobie pass that on we don't that's all i'm saying about that uh what a, what those who know know by the way it, go click on benny gifford's profile you'll have all your eyes will be satiated um oh. I want to know. Wow. How, I want to know how you're feeling. Can we take a after, break? Uh, can we take? Can we take a? Can we take a five now? <laughs> just you want to go take? Do you, out need, do, you need, do you need a full five? Well, I just want to get caught. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> um, no, I don't, Bracken. Yeah, I suppose. Chris, I want to. We're going to go to your backstory after my ne- my last question, and that sure. I want to get to know. You. I don't know you well as an athlete, but um, I got to ask, man. Like, how long of a time coming was your performance this weekend, and how are you feeling about it? You mentioned in your. Um, in your post-race interview, like you kind of felt like the guy that like kind of hung out and knew the top guys, but you hadn't felt like you maybe earned your place into that group yet. And so it was like validating for you to go out there and, and stick your nose in a race. That's, that's as far as I know, but um, like, how you feeling about it? Was this something you knew was going to happen or were you at the start line with uncertainty still? Well, so functionally what happened is I hopped in. Well, okay. Let's do like, there's a little backstory to this. So when Spartan Trail first started up, um, Joe reached out to some friends and basically wanted to recruit some trail running industry insiders to launch the thing. Um, that didn't apply to me, but it applied to some of the some some friends of mine. And so I got invited to uh, Tahoe in 2018 to do a photo shoot. I was just going to be ambiguous runner model on some of the the. Uh, promotional materials that were going to launch the thing. 
while I was there, uh, Watson, Dave Watson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of coincidence. The same thing happened to me at Hoka. I was like, I knew the photographer was in the shoe catalog as like, you know, anonymous white male modeling shoes. Uh, and then six months later I'm running on the pro team. It's like totally coincidental. So th- th- this is exactly what happened at Spartan. My buddy was the photographer. He wanted me to come run for some of the marketing materials. My contact was Dave Watson. Um, he was great. We got along really well. And, uh, after the race, he's like, Hey, if you ever want to hop in uh, a Spartan, just let me know. And I'll put you in one couple months later hopped in one won it he saw that he was like dude this is ridiculous you're an ultra runner you just want a spartan you're on the pro team right now which like certainly not earned but um it was the idea it was it's almost like a a promotional it's almost like a marketing stunt right it's like here's this hybrid athlete here's the ultra guy let's see if he can do uh ocr and and from a marketing perspective, like Watson's thinking, this is, I mean, this, no matter how this goes, it's great. Like if he comes in and kicks ass, great. If he comes in and gets his ass kicked, maybe even better. Cause then we just get to hype up our athletes. Right. Um, here's a, you know, professional trail runner comes in and, and tries to make waves and can't. So either way it works out well for him. So I spent like a year, I had a schedule. I went and did a few of the national series races and then went to, um, uh, trifecta worlds and ultra worlds and didn't do amazing. I had some flashes of potential, but, um, I'm like flying around the country and, and in some cases the world hanging out with, uh, the Ryans and, and Robert Killian and Aaron Newell and guys who, uh, are frankly way better than me. Um, but I'm like being put up in hotels with them and it's, you know, I certainly felt like I didn't deserve it. Um, and, but at the same time, it's like, I knew that it it was possible, but everything had to be right. Like the course had to be right, which it almost never is. It needed to be minimally technical, but also have some climbing um, and just have, you know, runnable terrain, but not be at altitude. Uh, and then I needed to get the obstacles in the right sequence so that I wouldn't have a hard gauntlet at the end. And like I, I needed... I needed it to be dry out because if it's wet, then I have a harder time on the obstacle. So it's like the potential was there, but this, the conditions in which to satisfy that potential were like impossible to achieve because Spartan races are hard and I needed an easy one. Um, and then I spent a year getting better at obstacles. So I'm not, I mean, you watch, if you watch the recap, like I'm still garbage at them. I got, I would get a big lead on all the running sections and then just get caught on every obstacle. Uh, but, you know, I kind of got it at, at Asheville. It was a runnable venue. There was climbing. It wasn't that technical. Um, you know, the obstacles were sequenced well. Uh, I've gotten better. And, uh, you know, I, I got second there. And I don't think, I mean, it's there's no such thing as a fluke in running, right? Because you can't run better than you can run. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as a fluke in any distance. Um, but having finished second... I don't think anyone should bet on me to do it again. <laughs> like maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll go out and start finishing a little higher, but like second's definitely an overperformance. Yeah. It's, I guess, agree to disagree. I think the signs were there. You know, when I learned some things too, like you got to get out hard. Yeah. And you're a coach. 
you're a coach. I'm sure you've dealt with plenty of athletes and you've told them something along the lines of when you start doing the same thing over and over, you're ready to spike something, you know, and you've, you've shown enough flashes over and over of doing things that show, yeah, you're, you're ready for that moment. Maybe second place is higher than what you believe you're capable of consistently. But as soon as you start, yeah. I guess when someone runs five flat five straight weeks, you know, they've got a 455 in them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think this could definitely lead to an immediate consistent improvement in placing, maybe not immediately like podium, but, um, I, what I figured out, I, and I, I tried this in New York in, um, uh, a couple or a month ago. And what I realized is, you know, whether, so I, you know, in ultra running, you get out easy and you push over the second half of the race. It's just how it's done unless you're crazy or unless you're Jim Walmsley. Um, but if, when you start, when you start, uh, a Spartan race, if you go out in a five minute mile and then you hit a few obstacles, you're redlining. If you go out in a 10 minute mile and then you hit a few obstacles, you're redlining then too. Like, so you might as well just not get behind because once you're redlining, you're not catching up. So you got to be there. That's just the deal. Like there's no way to go over over walls and not spike your heart rate. So you got to stop worrying about keeping your heart rate down and just worry about maintaining some form of efficiency while admitting that your heart rate's going to be up. Yeah. And everyone in the second half of an OCR race is kind of reduced to, I believe, like, I don't know, half marathon pace running, 10K at best. Like you're reduced down to. No, worse. Watch the videos, man. Yeah. Yeah. You, you feel like 5K and you might be running a high end aerobic pace. And so if everyone gets reduced to that, gaps matter. On the road, if you you have your times you're going to hit, and if you go out slow, you're going to make it up with negative splits. And outside exactly. of a few freaks, an Albin, a Hobie, maybe a Ryan Atkins, outside of those, people don't cut down in races. It, it just no. doesn't happen. So the gaps are the gaps. The gaps are the gaps, exactly. And one of the, this is one of the like, I don't, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. But when you're looking at the coverage of these races, this is what was really compelling to me early in terms of thinking I can do well at this. Is I, I watched a couple of the long form uh, race coverage videos and it's like, these guys are a third of the way into the race and they're like shuffle jogging. And I was like, look at these guys, dude, they're barely moving. Of course mm-hmm. I can beat them. Of course I can. Mm-hmm. And then you get out there and you, you, you realize that it's just, it's like you see Atkins and Woodsy like shuffling along at West Virginia when they're four miles into a 13 mile race and you think it's easy. And then it is not, man. It's just, it's so different mm-hmm. to be out there going through it. When did you have that realization about going out hot? Because um, I, I I don't know if you know, but I, you've traditionally in the races I've been in, in these national series, at least two beasts in Big Bear and in West Virginia, you passed me in the last third of the race. So that means you started slow and then you ended up oh, yeah. failing something and I beat you anyways. But <laughs> point being is you did not go out hot in those races and you got disconnected early. So like, have you, have you experimented with this or was this your first time throwing caution to the wind uh i figured i I did go out slow because i I mean you watch the first 100 meters of these races and it's like dude that that can't be the right strategy watching all these guys just hammer and again i'm coming from the running background i've got that like sort of antipathy towards 
obstacle racing culture. And it's like, all right, well, I clearly know more about pacing than these guys. And these guys are clearly just roided up morons out front going out and hammering. Uh, and so I, I would never admit to myself that maybe they knew what they were doing. Um, and uh, I don't remember exactly when I came around to it. But yeah, the first time I tried it was in New York last month and just thought like, I kind of realized that you just, you're not, because of the whole redlining situation, you just can't get behind because you're not catching up. I mean, there's also more evidence in that, like, you do see guys blowing up constantly. And so when I saw everybody yeah. go out fast and then tons and tons of carnage, to me, that adds up to, well, they don't know how to pace. Uh, but mm-hmm. I was wrong. Well, you you were right in that it increases your chance of blowing up. But sure. yeah. people get away in these races and they don't in other races. It's almost like yep. triathlon, I think. It's more like triathlon than anything else where someone gets away on the bike and the good runners don't run them down sometimes, even though that person out front looks like hot death and they're just zombie walking in. They just got away. They're out of sight. And that just like that, it gets snipped. That tether gets snipped and in running, yep. it doesn't, but it gets snipped yeah. in multi-sport and we're kind of multi-sport. You remember Thomas Vokler? Yes. <laughs> Poor old Thomas Vokler, as Phil Liggett would say. That's the Thomas Vokler phenomenon. You let him get too big of a gap. So when I when I first heard of you, you had just you. So, uh, oh, this is what it was. Aaron Newell said messaged me and said, "Are you actually going to run the Tahoe Ultra?" And I said, "Yeah, I am." He said, well, that's a bad choice, but good luck, <laughs> which is a very Aaron Newell because, yeah, I'm, I'm not an ultra runner. Fuck Aaron. <laughs> but I felt like I needed to do that. And I said, no, I'm going to do it. And I'm in decent shape right now. He said, well, enjoy Chris Brown. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> nice. and I said, All right. So I got to look Chris Brown up. And unfortunately for me, the first result I saw was your slightly downhill road mile. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't slight. That wasn't slight. It was, we lost like 300 feet in a mile or something. <laughs> okay. And what did you run? Like 420, 418? Oh no, you're, you're thinking of a different one. I, so yeah, the very slightly downhill road mile was like a 418. Um, that's the state state street mile. Yeah. That one's pretty established. Yeah. So I I looked at that result and then it had shown up like you had run in college or something. And so I'm like, oh, he's a mid-distance guy. I'm a mid-distance guy. He ran 418. I ran 420 a summer ago. Like, it's going to be just fine. And then you beat or just lost to Gawiski in in a Carolina race. I don't remember which one it was. But I messaged him in Asheville. and 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 I said, how was how was he? He said, he's surprisingly good. And I said, yeah, but what's his climbing like? And he texted back one word. He said, sublime. <laughs> I said, what? Because <laughs> Gawiski is not like a, 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 I don't know. He's not a exaggerator. He's not hyperbolic. And when he wrote sublime back, I thought, this mid-distance guy is a sublime uphill runner. This is going to be weird. Yeah, so so hyperbolic and flattering, but also just not an appropriate adjective for that <laughs> like you can't be a i don't know sublime I, climber <laughs> Sub- <laughs> anyways so my my point is that we all have you wrong i thought you were a mid-distance guy who ran a great ultra and had sublime climbing people now think 
oh, he's just a pure ultra runner who's starting to figure out grip. But the fact is that your athletic background is much more multifaceted than just he was a miler or he's an ultra guy. And I want to know that. I, I'm interested in in the Chris Brown that came to be. So take us back and, and walk me through your athletic development. Um, well, to be clear, so the, the downhill mile I was thinking of when you brought that up would have been a pretty deep dive on Strava if you'd found it. But it's a, a much more severe <laughs> downhill, and I ran a 351. You're a 351 miler. 351 Legit. miler, and I thought I thought I had ripped the pads off of both of my feet. I could not turn my legs over faster. I thought that I was going to take off my shoes and just have bloody pads. Uh, wow. It was so heinous. Um, I don't recommend it. How early in did you reach that out of control stride feeling? A hundred percent. I went out in one fifty for eight hundred, so that's you know <laughs> <laughs> sub world record pace. I fell off on a downhill mile just because I couldn't turn over. It was just, it was like running in a dream where your legs are numb and you like want to go faster and your body just you, you're disconnected from your legs, right? Um. It was like that, but obviously way faster, but the same sort of experience of like, there's no aerobic output. There's just my, the things don't go that fast. And I'm just like falling down this hill. But anyway, I, you should try it sometime. Why did you do that? So I could be a sub four miler. I like that. What'd you wear? Yeah. Uh, shoes. Yeah. No, um, I was going to say wrestling singlet, uh, (laughs) <laughs> no, I wore um, the uh, Evo uh, Carbon Rocket, the first um, version of the Hoka uh, like yeah. marathon-centric carbon shoe. This is pre-Carbon X. Um, I think it was That zero X. drop one? I don't remember. Yeah, it was zero drop, but it also had a bit of a, um, a elastic upper, so I was moving around a little too much. Um so that created a lot of friction. Something with a stiffer upper would have been nice. But yeah, okay. So I don't know, man. I feel like we kind of, I feel like I kind of covered it. Like I just. No, 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 no. I'm talking like what sports did you pick up when you were old enough to play sports? Like before you had hair in your armpits. Yeah. Basketball, soccer, baseball. Um, and I was really good at all of them when it didn't matter yeah. how coordinated you were, when it was just about energy. Like I was a, I was a goalie and I was, I was a really good goalie until the goal got big. And then I was the worst goalie that we could possibly put in the net. And then I was a defender in soccer and I was really good because it, all it, all it was, was just chasing people down and kicking the ball away from them. Um, mm-hmm. And in baseball at the last level, before you moved up to like, you know, fast pitch and the mounds a little farther back, over the course of a season, I batted 7.15. And then the next year, when it was like playing on a normal size field, I didn't get a hit. So it, it was the same in every sport. It's like basketball. I could just steal the ball and I could never shoot, but I could steal and pass. So as long as it was just based on energy, I was amazing. And then kids grew. Coordination became important. The uh, field of play was turned into something that more resembled you know, how it was actually going to be going forward. And I just fell off so quickly in every sport. And, but, you know, I could still win the warm up. So 
I kept doing track yeah. and slowly dropped them all off and continued to focus on track. Did you take it seriously running? Was it enjoyable or is it just, this is the last thing av- available that I can do? Super enjoyable. I don't have memories of a time when I wasn't doing it competitively and during a time in which it wasn't my identity already. I've always been a runner the whole time, like six years old running has been my thing. Um, it's so fun. Like one of the cool things I've got all these t-shirts from like national events and track meets and cross country meets all over, um, you know, with all the names on the back of all the kids that, that were in them. And it's like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you guys have some of the same ones and you look at the back and it's like, Oh man, I didn't know Galen Rupp was at that meet when I was a nine year old. It's so cool to go back and see. Um, and then, and then you see like, uh, uh who was it who I saw recently? And I'll meet like new runner friends and go back and then see them on there. God, there's someone I just, uh, I was just on a run with David Laney, who's a, um, you know, relatively famous ultra runner. And, and then somehow like a week later saw that I raced him when we were, you know, tiny children. So yeah, it's it's been always, man. It's always. Were you good in high school? Uh, you know, front of the, front of the mid pack or back of the front pack, sort of good. Like, was never going to win state, but I was going to make state sort of deal. Like make state mm-hmm. as a senior. You're making state's amazing, but I made state only as a senior and then finished second to last at state. That was that. And what college state? was the same, Washington. Uh, and then, you know, college was the same thing. It's like never made nationals until senior year, made it in the 10K and track and was the last seed to get in and then outperformed it a little bit, but it was like not an All American. Um, Where'd you, know, you go? Out- uh, Claremont McKenna, little D3 school. It's in the, the neighboring town of uh, where Mark Battress is from, actually. We were D3 boys, too. Yes, we were. Oh, yeah? Where'd you go? I went to Oshkosh. Oh, uh, there you go. And I went to UW-Whitewater eventually, my last nice. few years. Cool. Oshkosh had great uniforms. Yeah. They always, yeah, they always put out on their uniforms, yeah. Yeah. Kirk and I have kicked around the idea of doing the checkerboard running public singlet. That'd be, Dude, that'd be dope. a good move. Yeah. That'd be cool. I love, you know, a lot of the D three schools, especially will pull out the retro jerseys just for nationals. North central. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. North central, the red and white, the candy stripes. Yeah. Yeah. Pomona would do it too. I think they had blue and white stripes and I don't know if they did it all the time, but I remember once in a while they'd pull out the old, old uniforms. They're pretty cool. So what'd you run in the 10K in college? 30-40. Yeah. Uh, My curiosity is just with you being a trail runner, um, did anything more come out? I mean, you're a good runner uh, back then. Those are That's a great time. Did, did it come out more in cross country in like high school no. and college? Because right now, oh, it didn't. I, w- I was way worse at cross country. Um, and this, is, this actually kind of speaks to the challenges in getting started with obstacle course racing is I've always been a rhythm runner. So like hmm. settling into a really? pace and hold, and hold. Oh yeah, totally. So I was bad at cross country. I was really good at track, but weirdly ultra running shares that in common with track more than cross country because cross country is about like you just accelerate and accelerate and accelerate and tracks about you Smooth find your groove and stay in it and ultra running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ultra running is more like track in that way is you have to find your rhythm and just stay there. Uh, so obstacle course racing is obviously the total and opposite end of the spectrum you just have to constantly keep re-engaging. How did you do well in Sacramento that year then, in 2011? I didn't do that well. 
you just jogged and it was Hunter's first race or second race maybe. And Hobie just you sat hung with us. Hobie for like seven miles. Uh, Hobie was, Hobie was trying to go as easy as he could. It was like, he was just sitting on us and then he'd surge a little bit and we'd still be kind of be there. And he's like, all right, well, these guys will drop off eventually. And then we kind of didn't. And then maybe like 10 miles in, he's like, Jesus, I, these guys shouldn't even be here. That was broken he, running. What do you mean broken running? Oh, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, that was, I hated that course. That was one of my least favorite terrains I've ever run on in my life. Hobie could have dropped us a lot earlier and a lot more severely. Okay. So you're yeah. a rhythm runner and then you graduate college and like, how, how did you start getting away from that? How'd you get to the trails in the mountains? Um, always knew I was going to be an ultra runner just cause the longer the distance, really? the better I got. I always was fascinated by ultras. I grew up looking up to Scott Jurek as a Seattle kid. Um, so I knew it was, I always knew it was coming, but then I graduated and like tried to focus on the 5k and the 10k more, um, and see if I could PR past college, which was futile. Um, so I did a f- few, few years of that and then just decided fuck it and switched over to ultra stuff. I um, mean, ultra has been pretty surprising. Like what'd you get down to in, Oh, in the uh, 10 K five K and 10 K. Yeah. Yeah. PR in college for 10 K was 30, 40. And I got it down to 31, 40 after college. So a lot of progression nice. there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I switched over, but it's, it's kind of cool. Like the thing about ultra running is it's not so much that, like at the front end, it's not so much that you, I mean, there's guys who have legitimate running credentials out there, but there's a lot of X factors involved too. Like you don't need to be that good of a runner. You just need to have the metabolic thing. Like there's tons of guys who I was, who were as good or better than me in college. And then we'll go out on a run that's, you know, five hours long and they just, something happens in their stomach and they can't keep going. Um, and I can, so it's, it's just like, a, I haven't improved. I've stayed pretty much the same but I just know I have this extra thing that other people shut down in a way that doesn't affect me until way later. So it's got this little extra skill set, and that's kind of what ultra running is. This makes sense why you did so well at the Carbon X2 event. I didn't realize oh, yeah. you were a rhythm runner. Now, I knew, obviously, the roads would beat you up a bit, or mm-hmm. I assumed, but I didn't realize how comfortable you would be in a real rhythm-based event like that. Yeah, well, I've... I, I, sort of developed a bit of a reputation at least with myself um but among friends too that i was a really good climber and i really leaned into that for a while and that was kind of my identity as a a runner and so i was picking these races that were you know like nine trails in santa barbara and um north face in san francisco that were all big climby races and that was just kind of my thing and i figured oh pick the hilliest course and you'll do the best there and uh i don't know how i i just I don't think I had enough evidence to, to, uh, prove that that was actually my strength. Um, and now I'm just getting more and more into speed stuff. I don't know. I keep switching, but I kind of like it that way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I, I'm hoping that my time from carbon axle send me to the world championships next year in the hundred K, which like dude, putting on a USA singlet, that'd be ridiculous. Mm which is like such a far cry from the whole like Western States, Holy grail thing to go try run a hundred K on the roads in. Yeah. So I'm still figuring it out, man. I like doing different shit. 
Kirk, before we get back to your question, um, Chris, would you put in a specific, like, would you take that fully seriously? Like, if I'm going to wear the flag, I'm going all in. Would you put in an extended block to just be your best 100K smooth runner? 100%. Yeah, I put in about, um, I put in about three months before Carbon X that were really, really specific. Um, oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I would, I honestly would probably do it exactly the same and maybe extend it out a little farther. But yeah, I would go, I would go really specific for that. And did you respond decently well? I obviously performance wise, you did well, but did your body hold up to that transition to, to less vert and more pounding on roads? Yeah, totally. We, I mean, just having the gears, you know, I ran 622 average for hundred K and like, you know, you know, this like six, Mm -hmm. 622. I mean, that's hard to do for that duration of time, but for, if you can run, you know, if you're a guy who can run 10 miles at, I don't know, five flat to five thirty, that just doesn't feel that fast. And so having access to the, the, the faster speed, you don't have to be like, you don't have to be a four flat miler to have 620 feel easy. You can be a, you know, you can be a five flat runner and have, you know, 620 feel easy. So, um, yeah, I, I think just having the collegiate background that I had, even though I wasn't super elite, just knowing what way faster feels like um, mm-hmm. was really useful mm-hmm. in being able to hold that that sort of moderate fast pace. Whereas if I'd come from just a strict mountain background and had been used to just grinding at seven minute miles up crazy terrain all the time, I don't know if six twenty yeah. would have felt as casual. I'm sure. I'm sure easy six twenty feeling easy is probably not the fully correct descriptor. I would imagine at some point, what, when did it not become easy? How long does that stay easy for? Well, the weird thing about a race like that is, um, you know, we had pacers, right. Who were running, you know, a prescribed rate, like just exactly where we wanted to be, but that's not how a body works, right. It's over a distance like that. And maybe, maybe you want that in a 10 K, but when you're having to ingest things, you're going to go through energy swings and realistically, the most efficient way to run it is not going to be to run the consistent, the perfectly consistent pace the whole way through. It's going to be to respond slightly to fluctuations in blood sugar. Um, but you can't do that. Like that's, you can't do that calculus on the fly. And so you kind of just have to run that same pace and then have it suck a little more, a little less based on where you are physically. So, I mean, there were parts like 20 miles in where I was like, dude, I was, I was not in a good place. And I just kind of go dark for a few miles and then come back and then I'd have 10 miles that were just easy. And then, but really where, where it started to kind of wheels fall off, like this is irredeemable sort of feeling. Um, I don't know, 45, 50, somewhere in there. Like, yeah, it's about that, easy when I start getting tired too. Yeah, right around. <laughs> well, that was the point at which I knew, I knew that I wasn't going to run another mile faster than my previous mile. Like it's, I'm not oh, getting yeah. back on yeah. the average. It's not happening. <laughs> A piano was being set on your back one key at a time. Just lay it on there. In ultra running, you have to learn to push through tough spots, knowing that there's a chance that it gets better on the other side. But there's, there's a point at which, you know, it's not getting better and you just are, you're doing the decline. And I was, that's probably about where I was doing the decline. But then you were only 13, 15 miles from the finish. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of started phoning it in a little bit and yeah. And then, and then there was a, a guy who, who kind of started running poorly and started coming back. And then I was thinking if I can get, uh, 
I might be able to get on the podium here. And there was a bonus associated with that. And so I, I finished actually somewhat hard in the last few miles. Um, yeah. And you ended up yeah. running off for that year. You were top three, I think, I think 100K so. performance so far, right? I think I think it's 11 all-time US. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I, I, I don't know if anyone has run it this year besides us. So that would be number three this year. Yeah. Yeah. Top 11, 100K. No, it's not a... It's not like a, a recognized USA. Like, I mean, we're it's not throw this podium, in every meet. It's not podium at a national series race or anything like that. But no, uh, uh, I mean, my point <laughs> is, it's maybe not the most popular race to the average person. But yeah, it's not on their radar. But to be top eleven performance in anything in the United States all time is is pretty damn strong. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm 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 certainly proud of it, but like you're alluding to, there's definitely qualifiers to put in there. Like one of the things, especially when I'm watching like Olympic events to be, you know, current, um I always like to think about the I feel like there should be a score assigned to the sport based on the the sort of the extent to which it is living up to its potential competitively. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, there are not very many people in the world who might be the best hundred meter runner in the world. They just don't know it. Whereas it doesn't hide. No, it doesn't hide. Whereas there's a lot of people like that in ping pong, right? There's a lot of people like that in some of the like equestrian, like there's tons of people, there's tons of undiscovered talent in a lot of the more obscure sports. Yeah. Um, And the, you know, 100 meters gets a lot of reps, right? And 100K, you're right to point out, is like being number 11 all time in the 100K is like being number 10,000 all time in the 100 meters. Nah, I think that's over, <laughs> but I, I get your point. It's, yeah. And, and it seems like the, the quickest way to judge it is how long are the races together? How long are you packed up until a move gets made? You know, the, the fuller a sport is, the oh, more yeah. it comes down to hundredths or tenths or single yeah. seconds versus totally. minutes. And yeah, we're not quite there yet, but it's progressing. And, but my point wasn't that it's diluted. It's that just because a lot of people don't know about it doesn't mean that top 11 is anything to scoff at. You know, it was, it was one of those that like, that's our guy. We kind of all felt proud. Like that's a guy who's done. He's run our races and he just, he just did this. Dude. You know what? I, that was kind of heartwarming actually is when after that race, like I saw more, response from obstacle race and part of it's because i went and did matt b davis's podcast but even before that like i had i had more people reaching out to me from the obstacle world than from ultra running maybe that's because Mm. it's getting diluted over there and like the idea of this being like a spectacle um as an event kind of made it appeal more to obstacle racing people um but i don't know there's something kind of sweet about the ocr community in terms of their uh, tendency to rally behind each other. Do you ever feel like, is, is there any like black sheep feeling being on like this Hoka squad full of a bunch of people who don't dabble in, you know, Tarzan esque competitions? Do you ever have yeah, that feeling? Absolutely. Um, you know, you know how everyone, well, I, I hear it all the time. Maybe I'm, maybe I just hear it more often, but I definitely felt this way, but I've, it, it seems like everybody feels this way. So I don't think this t- is totally novel. Um, you know, that sensation of like in high school, you don't have like your one friend group. You just kind of float between friend groups. 
Um, and you're not like one of the core anywhere. You've got just like five groups of people and you're kind of like just barely in with all of them. Um, that's kind of how I feel with it. But it, with, with athletics is like, I'm, I'm certainly on the B team when it comes to Hoka. Like they support me and I'm super appreciative for it, but I'm obviously no Jim Walmsley. I'm no Magda. I'm no, you know, uh, I, I'm not one of the top people. Um, and then in OCR, it's like, uh, it's kind of the same deal. It's like, I'm not one of the people who's committed to it as a lifer, but I can come in and do well and I'm accepted. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel, I mean, it's kind of a black sheep in, in both uh, situations, which is I think kind of fitting. I, I like but that. But has anybody made you feel that way or is it like uh, self-imposed? Absolutely self-imposed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, could just both... see like, I would just feel like with, I don't know. Is there anybody that runs for Hoka that does anything like this? Or are you the only, are you the anomaly in like the whole spectrum of anybody they support? Um, in terms of OCR specifically, I'm definitely the only one. I'm trying to think of people who have a second sport. Um, so I had this, like, I had, I had planned this real heart to heart with my athlete manager when I started getting into this. And I was like, all right, well, I got this offer from Spartan. They want to fly me around. It sounds really fun. And, uh, I, I didn't know how, but, but they have these obligations of like wearing Spartan apparel on, on the podium and I would have to race in it. And I didn't, I thought that was going to create friction. And I brought it up to my athlete manager on a phone call and I was all prepared and everything. And he was just like, nah, man, I think it's a different sport. I don't think you have to wear any Hoka stuff. <laughs> was like, really? Cool. I thought this was going to be a problem. But no, he, he, the way he put it, it was like functionally the same as just going out and starting a career as like a motocross driver. It's just like, this isn't related to what we do. So, which is maybe like, I think that the, the, the reason for it is Hoka doesn't want to just have one athlete competing half-assed at it. If Hoka wants to get involved in obstacle racing, they want to go all in on their terms, start a team sponsor some events, do a big push and not just have one visible dude who they're supporting. Um, see, Hoka is really not a part of my obstacle racing. And I think that's kind of a, that's the reason. Okay. Well, like if it takes away from like, Oh, Chris chose an obstacle course race instead of the other guys were out here doing this or that, that hasn't been a conversation. I was oddly curious yeah. about that with you. Um, it could become a problem. Like if I went out and if I ran two ultras one year and spent eight months just doing an obstacle racing circuit, like I wouldn't get re-signed after that. Um, but as long as it doesn't interfere, like what I do at the beginning of the year is I pick my ultra calendar and I want the, I pick the races that I want to do in ultra running and those aren't negotiable. I'm not dropping one of those because it's ooh, North Lake Tahoe Spartan. Like there's, they, I don't mess around with that. Um, but then I'll, you know, I'll fill in the gaps here and there. And that, that's kind of where OCR fits in. And if okay. that changed, then I think we might have a problem, but it's understood that that's how it's going now. Well, we, we had a training Tuesday. We did this last Tuesday on like race recap and then like how lessons learned. And one of the things I learned is I've run my first ultra this spring. I've run everything longer than two hours I've raced. I've done really damn well at it. In fact, I, it might be something that I want to pursue. It's gone really well. But with that, I realized I lost my ability to push through this 
redline suck fest, inside out, hate my life, misery that is OCR. I basically trained for something else for three to five months and then came back into an OCR race and got really humbled. And you as an ultra runner, and humbled not even, I'm fine with my performance. It's more like humbled with like how my body responded. Oh my God, what what happened? And here you are with ultra still being your focus. And then I would describe like that race, you couldn't lay off the throttle. You had to be inside out and miserable from the beginning. And you had to like fight your way through it. How do you do that, Chris? How, do, how does a guy balance it all out? Because my training didn't set me up for success in hindsight, I realized. So I want to know what, what you did in that regard. You can't do that all the time. Like you've got, both of you have been racing long enough to know that you can't, you can't go to the well every time. You can't just go at your pain threshold and just keep hammering and keep hammering. Um, you get that sometimes. Uh, rarely. It's not every race. It's not most races. I had it this weekend where I, I put myself in a hole and I was able to just keep asking myself to keep pushing. Part of it is it's only an hour, right? I'm used to running 17-hour races. And so mentally, there's something really easy about Yeah, but sometimes an hour is worse. Totally, totally. But there is something approachable about saying, well, fuck it, just make it hurt as much as possible. It's only an hour. You can suffer. You've suffered for so much long. You've suffered for, you know, yeah, you've suffered so much longer than that, that nothing you could condense into an hour could could really kill me. So that that, that definitely helps, having gone through way worse. But um, at that said, like, you know, your experience is not uncommon. And I think Atkins had the same experience this weekend based on the way he's described it is like, sometimes the race calls for you to do that and you're kind, but you just don't really have it in you on a given day to, to keep pushing when it hurts and keep pushing again and again and again. Um, so yeah, I, that's, I had it this weekend to go for it. You had the look of a guy who had it. Uh, Mark, I've, I've run against Mark a few times and when Mark's on, he's kind of a scary, aggressive racer where Batris or he, Gadet? uh, well, I guess both, but Batris had it. He was on and he, he can accelerate really aggressively when he runs. He just has an mm -hmm. aggressive looking stride. He's got that forward hunch and he's just like punch in the air. And when he's on, he's hard to stay with. And a couple of times he just moved past you. And we usually know that that's kind of the end in OCR when you get, moved past you're generally not moving you just kept getting back it looked like you just kept telling yourself all right once more once more yeah. and then at the finish line your conversation with him that you you know i don't know how much of it was fabricated or or not of hey fight me now so that we don't have to fight them later at that point in a race oftentimes we're looking for i hope he either quits or drops me because i don't want to go through this anymore so you had that look in that mindset of a guy who was just locked in that day and was searching for more out of his body. I do that all the time. Oh, you do. It struck me as rare that someone would be gleeful about leaning into that, that fire at that point. Is that you usually, or what were the stars aligned? Um, so first of all, if, if I didn't have Mark there, I would have probably gotten fifth. Um, really? having Mark, if Mark hadn't, you couldn't, you didn't see it on the uh, rebroadcast there, but there was a big hill going into rope climb, which is where we finally broke everybody, he and I. Um, and that's where I was doing most of my talking with him. 
talking at him. He did, he never responded to me. But um, if Mark hadn't gone there, and if I hadn't you know chased him, caught him, passed him, I would have stayed with the next second place guy. I would have just kept fighting that person, um, which is another part of like going out fast and holding on, as opposed to running your own pace and trying to move up later. Um, staying in the mix and just fighting, like forgetting the proper pacing and just staying right in this competitive spot you want to be. Um, so yeah, if Mark, if Mark hadn't been there, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have, uh, finished where I did. But, um, I, as a rate, one thing that I know about myself as a competitor is that I get really, um, supportive actually. It's kind of odd. Like I have this tendency where if, uh, like for, <laughs> it's kind of silly, man. Like we're coming off helix, right? There's a 200 meter all out spread. Which you flew through. That was your best obstacle. That's amazing. I had no idea how that happened. <laughs> I'm usually so slow on helix. By the way, I had no idea Kempson was there. Um, really? Had no idea. I, I, you know, I heard the guy running behind me right after helix and I assumed it was Mark. No idea. Kempson was there. Um, but, uh, so right when I got off helix, I was running away. I knew we had like 200 meter charge to the finish. I heard Mark, which was actually Ryan right behind me. And I thought to myself, if he passes me, I'm going to say, you go get it, man. I want you to have it. Yeah. That's what I do in all races. Like if it's coming down to a sprint down the home stretch, most of the time, my first instinct is like, good for him. He's having a great day. Do you give in or you just support them while yeah, trying to rip totally. their throat out? Uh, no, I support them while also trying to work hard, but I, I don't, I, I, I just, my tendency is to go towards wanting what, wanting them to do well and I'll keep going hard. I'm not going to like back off to let them win, but it's like, oh, I assume I lost at this point and like good for this guy. Um, and then occasionally I can turn it off. I, so I heard that in my brain. I was like, well, Mark, I want you to have it good for you. And then I was like, dude, it's 200 meters, man. Why don't you just fucking fight? And then I, I sprinted and got away. But uh, that is my tendency. It's really, it's kind of an odd thing, but I, I don't, it's not really like an eye of the tiger thing. It's, I'm, I, I'm obviously perfectly capable of working really, really hard and digging deep into a hole, especially to finish. But it's very rarely about beating somebody. Um, yeah, because I just, I'm not really, it turns out in the heat of the moment driven by the guy next to me. Afterwards, I'm all about it. It's like, I beat this guy, I beat this guy, I beat this guy. But when I'm in there, I have no interest in beating the guy next to me down the home stretch. I don't know. It's a strange weakness. You know what? I like hearing that because your interview almost struck me as satirical. Almost like you were kind of making fun of people. Like I knew I was better than them. So I was like going to play mind games on them and break them. Be like, Hey, come on, come fight me for the-. But it, like, it actually now is ringing true that you truly meant it. Like let's work together and let's do this and get away from these guys together. And, it's because of your personality. You're always glib and sarcastic. And sure. I didn't know how much of that was, was smoke and how much of that was real. Well, you can only like, you can only talk. Uh, the things that I say, you know, the way that I describe a race, um, it obviously is informed by the self perception as being the black sheep. Right. And like those guys being a lot better than me, which gives me 
the ability to say things that other people I don't think can say. Like if you take yourself really seriously and you're one of, if not the best, like you kind of have a responsibility to um, be self-deprecating in a way, like do quarterback talk, right? Like, oh, this was a team effort and, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. I just want to give thanks to like all the, the O-line. It was all about the O-line today. It's like, dude, come on, man. Like you threw eight touchdown passes. Like it wasn't about the O-line, bro. Like, you know what you did. So, you know, someone like Atkins has a responsibility to say things that are a little different from what I can say. Like I can go out there and be like, holy shit, I ran like, what a ridiculous race, huh? Didn't I do amazing? Because it's like obviously informed by the fact that I think I shouldn't be there. Right. So, um, yeah. Anyway, maybe I don't have have to change. Yeah. I was going to say, I might, (laughs) might, I might have to start being a little more, I got, you know, you got to be consistent before you really have that problem, but yeah, that's fair. I, I I guess I wanted to follow up on my first question about it, which was like, okay, if if you were, I don't know if you're ultra focused training right now and just happen to do a one-off 50 minute race where you crush, but like, why were you, why do you think now that you have a few days to sit on it, why were you successful on a course like that? given your focus i've got a big aerobic base from a lot of ultra training but i also over the past like month and a half have hopped in a bunch of uh track workouts i've just been been feeling really flat on the hills in the long runs and so sometimes when that happens to me i'll just forget about weekly mileage and start doing speed workouts um like i'm training for ccc it's a mountainous 100k and i'm out here doing track workouts it doesn't make any sense but if the mountain workouts don't feel good or inspiring, um, you just, you can't keep beating your head against that wall. Cause you're not going to get anything out of that yeah. if you're feeling flat. So I switched to speed cause I, that always invigorates me. Um, even though it's not specific to the training I'm doing, but I guess the, uh, the, the benefit here was that, uh, you know, I have been running, I've been doing a lot of work at like, you know, 420 pace. So, Oh, so you you mean speed speed? You're running oh, yeah. fast. Oh yeah, like six hundreds and two hundreds and eight hundreds and for real real track work, not tempo runs. Um, so going out at a five flat mile was like I can do this, just to shake the body because it's it's still good for you. Like it's not going to make you a worse ultra runner, and you might as well do something that is exciting. I think you make a good point about like feeling flat and falling into like, so you kind of fell into a lull with a certain style of training and then to go and do the polar opposite. Sometimes that like snaps you out of it. I've gone through a number of periods of training. It's almost the best medicine. Like why keep 100%. banging your head against the wall? Take the door, yeah. go do something different, come back through the door later and go back to, you know, what you know you need to still do. It can be hard because again, like I've got a mountainous hundred K that I'm training for. And in a way I had to give up on having the ideal training block because I just am not going to at this point, but you're better off doing a good job at something only peripherally related to the skill set you're trying to prepare for than doing a shitty job uh, preparing for the race in what you know should be the exact right way. I like that a lot. Me too. And there's plenty of evidence in the ultra world of really high-end guys who include weekly flat ground speed sessions or at least every other week. You guys might've had this in college. You ever have that thing where like you train a whole season for, uh, uh, the, the 1500 and you're, you like get it, you know, halfway through the season, you hit a pretty good PR and everything seems on track and all your workouts are great and you just can't get it down. And then 
and you kind of give up and then you just hop in an 800 or a 5k and like PR like by a lot yeah. because yeah, it's that yep. it's the exact same thing. Sometimes you just, you get stuck and you have to mix it up somehow. Yeah. I think the, I, I think the newness is so important to us as, as just psychological beings that, Oh yeah. You can, I mean, I, it's a bad analogy, but I ran into this when I was prepping for surgery, I started riding the bike a lot and I started doing long time trials, like hundred miles as fast as I could. Nice. And the first one, I didn't even feel it until probably 75 because I was so jacked up just to be out there. Yeah. And by the third one, like every stroke was work, even though I was in way better shape because you just done it so many times. It's you have to go there yeah. again and go to that place again. Like the, the excitement allows us to be tough a lot of times. Yeah. The, your body starts calling your shit there after a while. It's like, dude, we, why, why are we doing this? All right. Let me give you yeah. some slightly more intense signals that this is a bad idea. Why did you, uh, I guess one other question popped up when you were saying something earlier is I don't know any of my college teammates who are infatuated with ultras while still in college. That seems to be like one of those things that's like learned later. I don't know. Somehow somebody talks you into a 10 mile trail race. You're like, Oh, I like that kind of. And then you go for the next thing. It's like your gateway drugs are these little races. And pretty soon, like, how does, I don't know, a single person young that wanted to do ultras. Like why, how, where was that origin? Um, well, yeah, definitely rare. And that's just evidenced by the fact that young runners are rare in ultra running. It's getting more and more so, uh, or it's getting less and less rare, meaning there's more and more young kids doing it. Um, probably because of role models, right? Like you don't have people to emulate. You don't, you don't know what bad water is. Um, so, and I had Scott Jurek, which was rare. Like, Scott Jurek was very well known in the Seattle running community. If you were a track kid, if you were a road marathoner, like he was still the local celebrity runner. He just happened to be the ultra guy. So I was in a unique geographical circumstance to have a role model in a way that a lot of other people didn't. Um, that was part of it. Um, and then, you know, just like through the course of a young kid's track career and cross country, just always doing better the longer the distance was. I guess I just mentally extrapolated like, well, what's the longest possible distance? Someday I'll do that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so opposite of like, like Brack and me and you. Uh, I mean, the longer the distance got in college, the worse I got for sure. I mean, I was an all American in the 1500 and I barely made our national squad in cross country. Yeah. And so, but, and it took me until in my thirties to have a curiosity about, Ultras. I mean, I did my first one last year for my birthday because I had nothing else to do because of COVID. What'd you do? I just ran 37 miles on my 37th birthday and I oh, raced nice. it basically. One of those. And then I hopped in a 50K and won it earlier this year, which felt good. But cool. Which um, one? Uh, Superior, you know, Superior Trail. Yeah, dude. That's awesome. That, the, the Superior tra- races are awesome. That's That's legendary shit right there. Yeah, gnarly course. It was great, but it was time trial fashion. So, um, okay. so we all, so I didn't race anybody. It was like, we'll see where the cards fall. You know how that goes. Yeah. But it's an awesome race. Yeah. But, um, anyways, so I don't know, like Bracken, you're the same way. You went out and ran, you're trying to run ultras and go to Tahoe and you've done a 50 K in the Tennessee mile. And like, you know, 5k was far for you. It's just like very, I don't know. How do we all end up in the same place? It's just very bizarre how that works. 
Yeah, well. Well, it, it, the role model thing is right. You know, when I when I ran in college, I was saying I ran the 800, bumped up to a mile when I wanted some some strength work. And I think I ran right after my fifth year of college. Uh, I had PR'd my mile, PR'd my 5K, and I jumped in a road race and I ran 1639 and puked my guts out afterwards <laughs> for a 5K. Nice. Like, I had the steepest dive, but I spent five years running 200s and 300s. You know. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, like my role models afterwards, they didn't run because there's no there's no there's no venue for a post collegiate D3 middle distance yeah. runner. Yeah. And I never got that negative feedback. See, you guys bumped up a distance and had a bad experience, and I never had that. Oh, the worst. So I, every time I bumped up, it was like not only did it go better for me competitively, but especially doing it as a little kid, like going out and doing like a eight-mile race as like a nine-year-old, I got so much positive feedback from people around me being like, holy shit, this little kid's running this 12K race. So it just was planted in my head very, very young that I didn't you know, that just keep going longer, keep going longer. You know, I think that, you know, middle distance runners have a decent track record of transitioning to ultra runners on the trails. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of examples that are coming up in my mind right off the bat. I mean, Matt Daniels is an amazing one. Um, Yeah. But, but we don't have as many of the role models, but looking back, it should have been encouraged. Growing up, I was invigorated by those crazy feats. I talked about one on here. I was late coming home playing basketball at the YMCA one day, and my ride bailed, so I ran home to get home before curfew. And for me, it was an outrageous distance at the time, but the whole way I was invigorated. Yeah, and meanwhile, you get you're like you make curfew and you're like panting. You're like, I fucking did it. Your parents like, dude, it would have been fine. Like, yeah, I ran like nine miles in Kobe's basketball shoot, you know, something like that. And, but, but those were the things that invigorated me. Racing was, it was fiery, but the things that really fired up my soul were those, when like you get stuck somewhere and you decide to bike home like 20 miles in seventh grade. Yeah. Like that was the crazy. Those are the things that should be poured into when you're younger and people should be like, you know, there is something you can do with that. But, you know, I, I rediscovered it at, at what, 31? I mean, this is this is what's so cool about FKTs coming into fashion right now. It's like yeah. the, it's the childish desire to explore and push yourself, right? Like, we all get that when we're doing ultras. But at a certain point, like, hey, man, I've done 100 miles. That was a lot. Like, I don't really want to do a 250. But this idea of, like, well, maybe I can run the entire distance from you know, this trailhead across the state and end up here. That's the same sort of yeah. wonderful experience that, you know, bike, like I, I was going to bring up a biking example too, but yeah, having like some 20 mile bike ride when you're in seventh grade and you don't have maps and it's like, I know kind of where it is because my mom drives me twice yep. a, a month, but <laughs> uh, so you kind of figure it out and take some wrong turns and see some bums and run away and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but you're house. alive scatter you're Uh, exciting every every new pedal stroke is longer you've ever been and it's yep it's alive but you said something earlier that you can't fake running you can't pop a race that you're not capable of and we all nodded in agreement and i'd say there's one exception to that and it's super long ultra races because you hit your you hit your ceiling and running running like you know your metrics you're capable of what your heart's capable of putting out and what your body's capable of shuttling and what your legs are capable of firing at and that's it 
-hmm. Your toughness allows you to get to your ceiling, but the ultra ceiling, slower runners beat faster runners consistently. All the time it happens. And I think it's the one place where people can go out and say, I could never break five in my life. And I can be a successful person here where it's not just one metric that determines, like you said, your stomach. If you could be yeah. the fastest runner in the world with no ability to eat while moving and you're done. You can be a slow person who can eat while you could eat a pizza while moving. Okay, go do a hundred mile race and you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, you can also, well, I thought what you were going to bring up when you said that you can't run outside of your capacity. Because I think what you're describing now is, it's all still running within your capacity, right? You cannot run faster than you can run. And part of that is digestion. But occasionally you get a free one. Like occasionally, like you go out hard, you don't eat quite right, but your body doesn't really know what's going on and it gives you one. And then you come back and you're like, oh man, maybe I'm really good at this. And then you try your next 50 miler and your body's like, yeah, well, remember that last thing, last time you did this, that was fucked up. And uh, we're going to need some more food this time. (laughs) If you don't give it to us, you're going to have some real energy problems. So I don't know. And you can disappear you can disappear mentally for a while and your body mm-hmm. starts doing what it maybe just what it's capable of doing. If you weren't at the wheel, yeah. you like, you might lose 10 miles to, to time and you don't know it. You started yeah. thinking about like, what, what would happen if like a bear came out here and 10 miles later, you're like off some wild thing where you're imagining like I fought off a mountain lion and I just ran six fifteen for 10 miles, but I could not have run six fifteen for 10 miles at that point. If I knew I was running 16 615 pace if isn't it wild how everyone has the exact same response to the mountain everyone. lion daydream <laughs> yeah like i know i would choke out a mountain lion in yeah. the middle of a 20 mile run i know it and i get home i'm yeah. like i die but in that moment yeah. it got me 10 miles <laughs> yeah sure did it's like yeah and i take one of its teeth too to prove it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i in my mind i'm hauling it back in to town yeah when i'm done with it yeah. <laughs> I want nothing to do with either of those things. This is going to get weird, guys. I've got a four-hour ride after this, so I've been sunscreening up, but I'm going to pop the top off and keep sunscreening oh, yeah. while you chat for a Please. bit. So. Please. That is going to get weird. I, I want you, Chris, something I'm actually really curious about with you because you're, you're dabbling into like two sort of scenes, the ultra scene and the OCR scene. Not dabbling. You're in now. Like You're not dabbling with either. You're whatever the opposite of dabbling is. But um, – I want to know if you have like a training philosophy that you could like wrap in a bow tie that we could pick apart. Like, do you have a training philosophy? This is getting weird, Bracken. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a lot of sunscreen. <laughs> I'm very pale and very bald, Chris. You like these tats? Why? That is my first question. We found a bunch of, uh, in the middle of the of quarantine, we ordered from Amazon, like hundreds of sheets of tattoos and the kids and we all put some on and we found some yesterday and we just covered ourselves with temporary tattoos. Oh, it's temporary? Man, it looks pretty real. It's like seven put together to cover the space. There's um, like a dragon, there's a wolf, there's a tribal tattoo. It, it's all, it's, it, it means a lot to me. It's really spiritual. You can pull it off. You can pull it off. Uh-huh. Well, training philosophy, uh, it's not a very good one. It's pretty personalized like i run by feel for the most part like i and it's it's not something i could advise to anybody else for anybody else because like again having run since i was a child i have a very very deep-seated sense of the of the the running week right like Mm -hmm. track work monday easy day easy day 
long intervals Thursday, shakeout, race, long run, you know, like the the traditional Lydier Daniels structure of a week and a block. I feel that in my bones. And so there's like assumptions that I have um, deep down that uh, not everybody has. So I, saying like run by feel, whatever you want to do every day, wake up and see what sounds good. That doesn't work for everybody because I have a sense of um, not just what I feel like doing that day, but like my body knows when I need a long run and my body knows when I need a speed workout. I, I have a way of sensing what's been missing that I don't think everyone can count on. Um, so you're not scripting out workout progressions per se. Nah, I, I think I'd be better if I, well, I'll like, if I want to do a track workout. So, I mean, sometimes I do, if I'm really serious about a training block, I'll write like eight weeks where I'll write the workout and the overall mileage for the week. And that's all I'll do. But I almost never even do that. I'll just do a track workout once a week and like write it the morning of based on what sounds good. Um, if I have a guiding principle, so sorry to interrupt though, real quick, but like, yeah. it's like an intuitive thing. Like you may, let's say you get done with your Tuesday workout or whatever that is. It's a quality session. Yeah. At that point, you still may not be certain what you're going to do on Saturday, but you'll feel it out over the next few days and be like, you know what? I do need to go chase vert again today, let's say, or, you know what? My long run shouldn't happen today for some reason. Like you're, you're that sort of intuitive, kind of like a quality workout to quality workout sort of thing. Is that what I'm yeah. understanding? Yeah, pretty much. I'll, I'll emphasize the quality workouts, but it, generally it's like, well, I'm at this point in the training block. This is what I've been doing generally mileage wise. This is how much time I have to get ready. This is kind of what I want to get at in terms of a peak mileage. So, all right, my assumption this week is I'm going to run about 90 to hundred miles. And how am I going to get that? Well, I'm going to do, let's just today, I'm going to go do this lap that puts me at 18 for the day. So I got to average this for the rest of the week. Uh, and then I'm going to do a speed workout here. That's going to give me this many miles. So that means the, the, the remaining five days must be set up in roughly this way. So that's kind of the deal. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a mileage guy. I'm pretty big into mileage. I can turn it off if I need to, Hope but timing. yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm a big proponent of it. Um, junk mileage is, you know, in, in college and, in track, you call it junk mileage, and in ultra running, you call it time on feet, and they have very different connotations. They're the same thing. <laughs> so, did you make it a point to keep those efforts in check at least? Yeah, I run really, really slowly on my own for the most part, which is weird because I can still hammer a workout, and if I'm running with somebody else, I can run a minute per mile faster than I would run on my own without even thinking about it. Um, which has been more recent. I don't know. I'm oh, I'm always trying to figure it out. I like that though. I I think that that if you're training intuitively, the best thing you can do is pull back a lot so that you can still hit your workouts because sometimes you're more apt to to, to throw a workout in earlier. Yeah. Like, man, I feel like cranking something today. You can crank that day if you didn't, if you didn't moderately crank the day before. Yeah, totally true. I, the big, big stimulus, big recoveries. Uh, I believe in that to a huge degree. We, we like, we, we, we preach that here. Cool. Yeah, we do. Big time. Did you, did you do any, um, like, oh, I have some OCRs. Do you, do you buy into any sort of compromised running or combination running, let's call it, where you are adding, you know, simulation Spartan 
OCR style stuff into hard effort training, or do you keep them separate? This year I raced in, I raced both sprints in New York and I raced this past weekend. And that adds up to every pull up I've done this entire year. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird that you lost time on the obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird that I lost time on the obstacles. I do yoga. Uh, no, I, I could improve a lot. I could, I can improve a lot. Um, not gonna I, don't, I mean maybe i'll try at some point and do more grip strength stuff okay is it something that you're gonna i mean are you gonna try to do well at different distances or are you gonna stick to your bread and butter races and then do like ash like oh this actually works out i'll jump into it i can't i can't see a way of focusing on ocr that doesn't entail losing focus on ultra running and i love i love ocr i love ultra running more so um, it's always going to be, I, I don't, I don't, I really just don't see my, at least in the short term, I don't see myself putting in obstacle specific training. I just think I'm going to continue to train for ultras. And whenever I have an opportunity to hop in an obstacle race, I'm going to do it because I think they're super fun. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to continue to go that way for a while. Maybe if I don't get re-signed at Hoka, I don't know. That could be a scenario. Say I don't get re-signed. I might you know, put in, you know, some big strength block and build the box in my backyard and start doing rope climbs. And <laughs> I mean, I got a spear toss, right? That's, that's, that's helpful. Yeah. That's half the battle right there. I think sure a lot is. of people are probably relieved to hear that in this sport. Oh, yeah. good. We, we don't have to worry about him like going the VJ route and just like getting really, really like immaculate, maybe even sublime on obstacles. On dude, <laughs> dude, he is just so good on obstacles, man. It is cool to see. Yes. Like, even, I mean, Atkins is Atkins, Atkins and Riot, or sorry, Atkins and uh, Aaron feel kind of similar in that they are really, really fast on obstacles, but there's a power there when they go yeah. over them they're not as smooth. You just, you see them go over the obstacles and you're like, Whoa, that's something that my body can't do because that guy just like, you know, there's, it was a, it's a feat of strength that I'm not capable of. Whereas VJ does it. And it's, it's so energy efficient, you know, it's smooth. It's just as fast as those guys, but it doesn't have the implied power that it has when you watch, um, Ryan and Aaron do it. Yeah. So I think I that's his biggest strength. Pet peeve when I watch races of any level track, Olympics, triathlon, OCR races, the commentators invariably make the same faux pas, which is saying, oh, and look how smooth and efficient they're feeling today. Or look how look how relaxed and within themselves you are. And you're like, we don't have a power meter above our head. You no. can't see what we're doing. We all fall yeah. into that, that trap. But VJ looks so smooth and efficient. He looks like he's always within himself with everything he does. Remember the uh, Olympic 1500 meter final in 2016 where Matt Centrowitz led from wire to wire and it's the last mm-hmm. lap and, and it's the last 200 and it's the home stretch and it's 10 meters of the finish and his form doesn't change. His, his mouth is closed. His form doesn't change. There's his eyes don't even change. His face doesn't tighten. It's the same the whole way, but he's running yeah. a 50 second last lap right? It's just, that's, you train for that, man. That's not natural. That's, that's what a professional looks like. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the better you are, the better you are at masking it. Yep. And VJ, I mean, dude, VJ's VJ's putting in the work to make the obstacles look good. It's not that's not an eight, and that's not that's not even to say that he's not working hard. Well, it's obvious to say that he's working hard in training, but it's not watching him go over the obstacles and look smooth is not even evidence that he's not working hard in the race. It's just evidence that he's gotten so smooth at those things that it looks that way. Yeah, he almost mm-hmm. does himself a disservice to the audience by looking so easy. They're like, yeah. oh, the, he, he's not even like tough. He's just faster than everyone. Yeah, well, fuck VJ, though. You know, we're going to stop <laughs> totally. stop saying nice things about this guy. <laughs> but, you know, that's what it comes down to. Like, like the difference between like an obstacle sucking the life out of you and pinging your heart rate and then an obstacle actually allowing you to recover and going yeah. back to your running, like nothing got in the way. And that's, that's the thing right there that I think actually totally. separates it more than anything. If you can relax through anything, then that's your, that's your five to 10 second reprieve where maybe guys like, let's say sometimes me and maybe you are, that's not your reprieve. That's when you got to like show up and get pumped and bring it. And then exactly. what happens you're running thereafter. That's the, that's where he's got it so dialed in that, that's where it's going to be tough to make up ground on him just in that alone, how fast he comes off. Yeah. I've, I describe obstacle racing as, you know, if, if imagine you're running a a 10 K or a half marathon, but every, every two minutes you have to put in a 10 second all out sprint, right? It's, it's not necessarily the person who wins in a straight 10 K is not necessarily the person who's going to win when those terms change so that you have to do a little sprint every time um, every, or every two minutes or whatever, like that's not the same event and it's going to be a different person who's the best at it. And, you know, you put the work in to get really efficient on the obstacles and maybe you get a little advantage and your, your sprint has to be a little less intense. The analogy is getting more com- complicated here, but that's, that's what it feels like. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, have you've been watching the Olympics, I assume. Not as much as I want to. I've been, you know, kind of tracking it though. What's going on? There's been an inordinate amount of falls in the mid distance and distance events, just a crazy amount, especially on the female side. But again, it shows the rhythm runners versus those who don't, those aren't gas tank diggers to people because some fall and pop up and go and some fall and splat and never catch up. And others that trip around them, like two or three people will trip, spread out, come back into it. And 50 meters later, one's off the back and the other one's just back into it. And it's just little glimpses of like that huh. skill set, that innate piece happens everywhere to some extent. And when you're running 350 pace, a stumble is like a rolling mud. A oh, stumble yeah. is like yeah. a barbed wire crawl, you know? Good point. Good point. Yeah, and then a fall is like a bucket carry. Yeah, it's like 30 burpees. Yeah, yeah. Some people like can get up burpees. off 30 burpees like Ryan Woods and run people down. And other people like myself do 30 burpees and we're the person that falls on the track and can never catch up to the pack again. Yeah. Who's the woman in the 1500 in the prelims who uh, who fell? She ended up winning the 5K too. What's her name? Safan Hassan. She Did you see that? She fell with like 350 to go in a 1500 meter uh, prelim and still came back and won the prelim in 350 meters. She made up the fall to win a prelim in a world-class 1500 meter. Like I talk, yeah. I can handle the rolling mud. Yeah. <laughs> but like, imagine if you put, um, let's stop talking about VJ. Cause you know, let's give someone else some credit. Imagine you took Mark Battress and put him in the kids race, you know, and then 
Yeah. And then he that's and then Stefan he Hassan in the prelims. That's fair. Yeah, that's like, fair. She falls down and she gets up. She's like, well, maybe I should give him five more seconds. You know, she's that much better. She ran three fifty one this year, Kirk. What'd you run in college? <laughs> fifty two. Yeah, you know, like she's she's one of the top two female runners all time. She's going for the triple. Fifteen hundred, five K, ten K. Oh man. Like that's, that's just... it's gross. She's run fourteen, what, eleven? Fourteen twelve? She's the fastest guy in our sport. <laughs> that's true. Hey, can I put a can I put like an offensive hot take out there? Give me an offensive hot take, yeah. Chris Brown. Offen- offensive hot take. All right. So picture this. Simone Biles fails a drug test, but the IOC has too much to lose. So they make her drop. Uh, that doesn't make sense now that she got back in on the balance beam. Never mind. But if she didn't. <laughs> no, but if she didn't. Is that where your head was man? going? That, that's your... where my head was going. It's like, oh, this seems like a conspiracy. This Olympics. So – so there's a there's a rumor going around floating amongst athletes that the IOC Wado Sada in the last three months finalized a new testing procedure that allows them to test for like fifty percent more than they used to be able to. And uh-huh. we've just randomly had the highest level of last minute injuries and dropouts in oh. running events. And we've had um, uh, several rumors of people who tested, but their their federations have pushed them through, and they're like the test is going to come out soon. So, anyways, wow. it, it's not it's it's correlation right now, but it could be causation that this new test is allowing them to catch people that were immune before. Oh boy! Mm. Well, you remember when the biological passport came out and instantly times dropped? like got slower and a bunch of people stopped showing up and a bunch of people tested positive. And then after a few years, it got back to, I think this is the next step from that. Yeah. Cool. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I've kind of lost track of uh, the sport to such an extent that I'm not like, I'm not tracking any individual in in relation to changes in doping policies. And so I, I can't really see the patterns like you're like you can, but I, I totally buy that. And I know that's happened before where a, te- a, a test comes out and uh, you definitely see some responses to it or what would appear to be responses to it. Yeah. Chris, okay. So then I, go out, Kirk. Well, no, I just wanted to make, bring it back to Chris. I want to know, I want to know, like, you know, I'm kind of bring it back like, to me, baby. Well, I want to bring it back to so you. Speaking because... of doping, Chris Brown, we have you here. <laughs> speaking of doping. That's exactly, that's how my thought process works. <laughs> Hell it's yeah. funny how, how it goes there. Um, well, no, I just, I think at this point in the conversation, like I'm ready to know, like we've talked about the past, like what's the future look like is what I wanted to do. And, and if you want to wait to pivot Bracken, that's fine. But I want to know, I can hold off, but I want to know like what's next. Now, this year, your grand plans, like how, how good do you want to be and get, like where is your focus at moving forward? And like, what are your, what are your hopes and dreams, Chris? That's what I want to know. It's getting more and more scattered, and I'm slightly worried about that. The things that I want to do are now, you know, CCC. Uh, I still really want to do Angeles Crest. I want to do Badwater all of a sudden after having a good debut really? road ultra. Yeah, now I want to do Badwater. I want to do the World 100K Championships mm-hmm. on the road. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll get back into Western States at some point. So I'm kind of like, but, and then meanwhile, it's like, I got a really good result in an obstacle race and I feel like I could continue to go there and, and perform a little better on a more consistent basis. So 
Like I, I, I kind of had myself figured out a couple years ago in a way that I no longer do. It's success breeds confusion sometimes rather than success. Well, meanwhile, I'm 32 and it's like, well, how much longer do I have at, at a peak? It's like, maybe I'd need to hone in on something that I want to do and spend five years just crushing the thing that I have the most potential at and having lost control over what I think the thing I have the most potential at is if that syntax works out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a, it's, it's a little frustrating or a little, at least worrying that, uh, that now I'm more interested in more things is like, I feel this pressure to like focus and yet, um, I'm, I'm failing to do so. Yeah. But you talked earlier about how you run a 1500 all year and then pop a 5k when you stagnate, you might be able mm-hmm. to, in theory, swing from peak to peak upwards where your obstacle racing buoys, your 50 K hundred K your hundred K buoys, your, your road racing, your road racing buoys, your Western States. Like you might be able to leap peak to peak and stay always, I don't know, burning with, with passion rather than getting in a rut. Do you have any like special intro rates for coaching clients? Cause I feel like this is working out. <laughs> I feel like you and I could work something out. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> I will tell you what, when I was, I, I mean, I, I coach basically full time now, but I first hired Bracken as a coach when I found this sport in 2016. And 2016 Bracken, is that how long it's been? Five years? Um, I, the biggest jumps I saw in my fitness was when I, like, I was just, I was running 16 0 and 5Ks on road races just for like five years. Just, Go run 16-0 or something. That's how, that's where you were at. As soon as I transitioned and just rattled my cage a little bit, threw a couple jump lunges and some pull-ups in the middle of some 800-meter repeats, suddenly I go and run 15-41, and I'm like, geez. Like, what? Uh, I, I, I'm not even – this doesn't make sense to me. I carried a bucket yesterday, and then I ran. So there's, like, something to that, like, shaking, rattling the cage. I say this, like – like, I go out and I race a uh, back-to-back race weekend in Las Vegas, and then two weeks later – running a 17 mile trail race feels like a breeze. And I feel like, I don't know, like it, it, I don't think I would have raced as well two weeks later if I didn't go through the misery of a, of a back-to-back Spartan race weekend two weeks yeah. earlier, because something about that can't be defined, but it's like, there's some truth there. So I like your pendulum swing idea, Bracken, because it might be something there. But at the same time, when that happens, when it's like you bang your head against the wall for a little while, hit a plateau at a distance, switch to something else and then come back and have a good result you don't think nor should you think that that was the best that was your potential right, right? you correct, think correct. well yeah. i was banging my head against the wall did something wrong and then like twisted my way out of it and got a slightly better result but maybe if i did it uh maybe if i was smarter about it the whole time i would have run 1520 sure yeah which is also probably the case yeah you're a victim <laughs> yeah. of your own of your own abilities the the people who are spectacular world beaters generally suck at everything else. That's damn true. You get to such a fine point, you can't do anything else. And if you can't get to that finest point, sometimes the next best thing is to be like, I can shake, I can be almost good at five things, but then it's always frustrating that what if I went in on one? That's where I'm at. Exactly. So what would your one be? If you had to choose right now one thing for the next five years to focus on, what is it? Um, you're talking like if I could make a deal with the devil and just get really good at one thing, which thing matters to me the most? Or what am I feeling most excited about pursuing right now? 
you talked about I have maybe five years of, of distance running peak. Go all in on the thing that I can get the highest at. What can you get the highest at? I think le- not so much five years, but I think two or three. It might be road. It might be the road 100K and maybe the road 100 mile. That's a young knees sport. Yeah. <laughs> then go back to the hills. Well, that was the what what your best at question. What, and then you 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 kind of threw us a nugget or what do what does like my heart sort of um as a curiosity about is it something different than that potentially? Western states, man. I would kill a lot of people to to win western states. <laughs> I can think of one you should start with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have no illusions of ever even cracking the top three there, but that race has always meant the most to me. And, uh, you know, I've satisfied a, a very, very, very long-term goal being top 10 there. And so in a way my, my business there is done, but that race still matters the most to me. And, uh, if, if I were to be able to choose achieving maximal success in one discipline, it would be Western States. Western states, though, and like maybe we look back in 10 years and your top 10 was the zenith of your Western states ability. But at the same time, because ultra running, like you alluded to, is starting to become at the front of the race more of a race from the start rather than hold back for a while. That course just blows people up. There's just such a high propensity for even a gym. You know, we've seen it. He sets a record or he might he might be lost or puking and. Like the top three requires crazy tactics to get, which leads people to yeah. blow ups. It's not a crazy dream. Did you track it this year? I track it every year. This year was so outrageous on the men's side. It's not, um, it's, it was an odd year. Uh, there was a lot of, I think, hyperbolic um, reporting on it. Um, in terms of actually the extent to which the men's field blew up and actually the extent to which the women's field um, excelled. Like, it was the best women's field ever. You look at, uh, on paper, the times, the average over the top three, five, and ten. It was it was the best ever, but not by that much. It wasn't the sort of monumental breakthrough that everyone makes it out to be. If you look at the top ten times and kind of where they fall... Uh, you know, based on like how many people run in the 17s, 18s, 19s, and 20s. It's like, it's a slight improvement. What really happened was they improved. The men had a slightly higher attrition rate than normal. And the men's field was weakened this year by the fact that no Europeans came over. So instead of having 25 guys who theoretically could run in the top 10, there are about 15 guys who can run in the top 10. So when eight of them blew up, which is kind of a normal number. Uh, they're just the piece. The, the only people left to pick up the pieces were guys who had already blown up and were walking it in. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the deal. Those three things added up to make it look really, really dramatic on the women's side. But it was, I was out there pacing Eric Sensman and uh, I, I, I knew I wanted to take a break from that race this year, but still, Watching how that played out and putting myself in that race, I was like, my God, I would have been sixth or fifth or something. Like, uh, Yeah, it was the open year. It was the open year, and I missed it. My, I, my, my response to all that is that you're absolutely correct. And I think that 
I would say that the Europeans not being able to come in guaranteed that a lot of the Americans would blow up. Oh, interesting. Europeans take up spots and suddenly there are spots available and suddenly you're racing because if I was in 13th right now, I'd run my race. And if I'm in, if I can see seventh, I'm going to run their race. And it almost is like the more good people you have that fight for something, or the more the the closer the the goal is, the more some people are just going to get spit right out. Like you're going to yeah. make a dumb choice early, and it's boomer bust. And I think the Americans benefited in the past of some people that removed their desire to try something crazy. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, one the Europeans have a history of blowing up there too. So if, you're right. If you're sitting back in 13th place, you're like, well, I got I know I got two Norwegians, a Swede, and a. Uh, and then a couple Frenchmen up there. And I know I can count on four of those five to come back because it's Western States. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, maybe maybe you have a little bit of a different perception on where you are and what your potential is on that day. So you're going to go after the 100K on the roads in your prime. And then you're going to return to Western States and go for your top three. <laughs> what would be the, the, the final prong then being the OCR component, what would be your ultimate, like, this is my mark in the sport. What race would you choose? What format, what distance, what title? I would probably go, uh, beast world championships, probably not Abu Dhabi, but suppose it comes back to Tahoe someday, or they do it at a different venue, beast world championships podium. Do you kick yourself or not? For not running the beast at Tahoe in 2019 with such a great race, fresh. I mean, yeah. Um, no, I think uh, no, not really. I I might have been top ten or something, but I would have missed the spear and you know whatever. (laughs) I have some some memories that are seared into my mind as like the freaky things I've witnessed in the sport. I've witnessed John Albin do some freaky things, Atkins, Hobie, even some of the lesser names like uh, Aaron Newell threw some OCRWC rigs last year. Like just some of the things that stand out is that's one of the freakier things I've seen in your second two thirds or second half of the first climb at world championships in 2019 strikes me as one of the freaky things where you come off the ultra the day before and you come past me, I'm on the side cheering 800 meters in and you're like 35th place looking around. You say something to me like, ah, legs are a little, a little heavy today. And then all of a sudden at some point you're, you're single digits at the top of the climb. You just went right past people who were fresh and peaked for world championships. And that's seared into my mind as one of those outlier things that I've witnessed in this sport. Well, thanks buddy. (laughs) I feel like you're buttering me up. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that's so silly. As we uh, it's about time to wrap this thing up, Chris. But I think I want to know, uh, just so people can look for you, what start lines are you for sure towing the rest of this season? OCR? No, any, any, really. Um, but I just want to know. Um, CCC. So that's that's UTMB weekend in Chamonix. Um, and I think that's honestly it. Uh, I'm, I'm keying on, uh, ultra trail Cape town, but it's my understanding that South Africa is kind of dicey right now. And I'm not sure how realistic that is. Um, and that's, that's the end of my calendar. I'll find some stuff, but, um, they all find a fall race and maybe a winter race, but yeah, it's CCC for now. And then a hard reset. Hmm. Okay. When is that race? Um, 
the 27th of August. Okay. So all sites, you're just, you're getting dialed in for that right now. And then after yeah. that, you're going to take a breath and then just kind of see where, see where you want to go from there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we will, uh, we'll see lots of, I mean, I had lots of ideas, but I feel like my, uh, you know, COVID race explosion has been a little delayed. Everyone else got their last year blown up and mine was kind of fine. And then this year has been a little rougher. I, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a line of questioning that I don't like when people do. Okay. <laughs> you tell someone I did a iron or I did a triathlon, like, Oh, did you do Kona? Or you say like, I ran a marathon, like, Oh, did you run Chicago, man? It's so epic. Yeah. But do you have a bucket list item? Like, do you have the desire to hit a UTMB or a Zanal or, or Mont Blanc? Or do you, do you want to hit some of the iconics to kind of cement your place and see where you stand amongst the people who have done those? I, not so much for that reason, but I am a, I'm, I'm obsessed with the lore of ultra running. Um, races that are meaningful are more important to me than races that are competitive. Uh, sometimes they are meaningful because they're competitive. So those things tend to, you know, things tend to be both, but, um, yeah, that's, that's Western States in a nutshell, right? Like, yeah, it's competitive, right. but it's also, it's also just, there's such history there and that's really the mystique of it. Um, Zinal sounds amazing. I'm more interested in Zagama uh, because I think it beats Zinal at its own game in terms of the hype fest. Um, so yeah, Zagama, UTMB, I'm not so interested in. Comrades, maybe? Comrades, absolutely. I totally want to do Comrades. Then again, Comrades has some logistical problems. Like in order to be in the elite heat uh, or like the front of the um, start corral, you have, which you have to be, um, you have to sign, you have to run for a team. Um, you have to like sign up and be, uh, uh, there's some endorsement process and you have to join a local team in order to do it. And it's not that logistically challenging, but I hear there's like kind of some weird corruption involved and it's like not a good experience being on a lot of these teams. So I'd have to talk to some friends who have done it before. Did you chat with Sage about it? Not Sage, but, um, some other people who I probably shouldn't mention because I just said that they ran for a corrupt team. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably good. Um, but uh, yeah, so that I'd have to navigate the entry process there. UTMB I'm not that interested in because it starts at 6 p.m., which seems insane to me. I hate sleep deprivation, so I don't really want to do that. Mm. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, Angeles Crest, Cascade Crest, these are some of the kind of races in the U.S. that used to be a little more important and aren't so much anymore, but they still are to me because they have that history. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of, whenever I'm looking to sign up for races, I go to ultra sign up and, um, I just pick some of my favorite runners, like old timers, like Carl Meltzer and Seth Swanson and Anton Kapritschka. And I look back and I look like, what were these guys running in like 2008? And those are the, those are the races that I'm drawn to. That's pretty cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. It's not an answer I've heard. Cool. Um, yeah, that's kind of, but you know, bad water sounds cool. Um, sort sort of, not really into Barkley. <laughs> um, yeah, a little this, a little that. Any desire for the long FKTs, like uh, I don't know, the AT or anything like that? No, no. Again, I don't really do sleep deprivation very well. I really like one good effort. Um, stage yeah. races don't really appeal to me. I like you know, run all day. Like the hundred miles is so perfect for me, you know, 16, 17 hours on a medium hard course. Um, that's just, that's the sweet spot. 
do it all day, and then you're done. Well, I'm satisfied. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'll tell you what. After chatting with you, I'm even I, I I'm even more impressed with your performance this weekend. Uh, to considering that you've done like 12 pull ups all year, and they've all been in the middle of races. You've done no race specific training uh, on paper, anyways. Of course, I mean when it comes to OCR performance. And so, I don't know, man, if you ever get that wild hair, I think, uh, I think you could go from black sheep to like whatever white sheep. Is that, would that be the saying? I don't know. I don't know. In the sport, if, if you wanted to, we're a, we're a welcoming group, as you know. So. Absolutely. I was, yeah, that's been one of the coolest things about getting involved in it is again, starting with the impression that it's just like broy club of, of CrossFit, you know, hype monsters. And to come in and have it just be like, oh, this is the same sort of sweet, awkward crew that ultra running's made up of. They're not too dissimilar, really. No. There's a, there's a few men out there who have bigger chests than they need to have. I'm not going to yeah. name names. There's a few of them out there, but like very few. Listening to Ryan Atkins tell bad dad jokes is just one of the sweetest things you can ever witness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure he appreciated that ass slap you gave him. Yeah, well, that wasn't the only one. They there were a, there were a few that didn't got, get caught on camera. I got him a few times. I got VJ. Uh, I think he wanted that cut out. Uh, Batris got it. Woodsy got it. You're never safe when I'm in the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've gone by me twice twice during races, and you never touched my ass, and now I'm getting a little self conscious over here. Wow. Well, now that I know you better, now that I know you better, you're in for it. <laughs> Well, man, thank you for your time. This has been a good conversation. Appreciate you taking two hours. Yeah, man, I appreciate the, you having having me on. This has been fun. It, it was a long time coming, but it was worth the wait. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's all right. <laughs> it's it fine. Let's go. Let's go out on a shitty note. How about that? <laughs> yeah. See you at a race or whatever. Yeah. All right. Cool, guys. Good talking. <laughs> See you, dude. Thank you. Mm-hmm.